0: Amen. Thank you. Ladies, thank you. Thank you so much for getting us started with that beautiful music. And welcome back. Um, Happy New Year. Good morning. Welcome back. I trust that you all had a great and wonderful holiday. Uh, I know we've just prayed, but I want to pray again. Would you pray with me? Lord, I suspect that every woman here It has been a struggle for them to get here this morning. Would you make your name glorious during our time together? We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. In 2017, it was estimated that worldwide there were 219 million cases of malaria. Now, a little side note, malaria is not really uh, an American problem, but it is a problem worldwide. Now, the good news is that it is usually curable if it is treated early with the appropriate drugs. The bad news is that in recent years, there has been an increase in companies or people counterfeiting Anti malarial or counterfeiting malarial drugs. In one instance, a Cambodian government official had two identical blister packs. One contained the powerful anti malarial, and the other contained flour. Sometimes the the counterfeits even contained something more toxic. Sometimes they would add acetaminophen to it so that it might reduce the fever and give the victim the illusion that they were getting better. Officials said at the beginning it was easy to spot the fake drugs. The packaging was very amateur and it would have misspelled words. But now they say they cannot tell the difference. The counterfeiting has become more sophisticated and the differences more subtle. Authorities say it's difficult to measure and know for sure the destructive impact of the counterfeit drugs because it is primarily taking place among the poor and the poverty-stricken countries. Here's what they do know, that counterfeiting of drugs and medical devices in general is increasing, and it is wreaking havoc on the public safety and the healthcare industry. Okay, And while uh, counterfeiting affects all industries, whether it's a pair of Air Jordans or uh, a designer purse, when it takes place in the medical and the healthcare industry, it can be deadly. This semester, we are going to be discussing a similar issue. This semester, we will be studying the book of James, And he addresses a similar problem, except it is a huge problem in the United States, and it is even more deadly and serious than a counterfeit drug. James is going to address counterfeit Christianity. He's going to teach us about genuine faith. Now most folks understand that if you want to be able to recognize a fake or a counterfeit, you educate yourself, you can become an expert on what the genuine looks like or the authentic. And that's exactly what James is going to do. He's going to teach us what genuine faith looks like in the real world. Okay, in a world that can be hard and filled with pain and suffering and sin And people who oppress poor people. We are going to be studying what is often considered the most relevant and most practical book in the Bible. All right, if you have your Bibles, would you find the book of James, James chapter 1. This semester, We are going to be using Carrie Fulmar's book entitled Faith on the Book of James. And I think you're going to find it to be an excellent resource in guiding us through this book. I think you'll enjoy the homework. Her lessons and her homework, she is going to be using what is called the inductive Bible study method. Okay, which um, she explains a little bit uh, in the intro of her book. Uh, An inductive Bible study basically means that the Bible is going to be your primary source. She's going to use the Bible to explain the Bible. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. All right, now when you are studying the Bible inductively, you learn to study and investigate the Bible for yourselves. Okay, and that's something that we all need to do. And so this morning, we're gonna do things a little differently. We are going to have a mini lesson on the specifics of James. And then we are also going to have a little mini lesson on what inductive Bible study is like. Okay, and that explains why your handout this morning is so long. Now, um, I don't want that uh, to scare you because much of the information in that is going to be intended for you to use as a future resource. Okay, but let's get started with our mini lesson on inductive Bible study. Now with it, there are three components or steps. And we're going to try to briefly talk about each one, and then we're going to actually try some of it out this morning. All right, first component is observation. All right, observation in Bible study deals with the question, what does it say? What did you just read? All right, and you're going to use this with everything you read, this component. All right, here's the second component interpretation. And this answers the question, what does it mean? What does the Bible passage that you just read mean? All right, now I want you to notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, what does the passage mean to you? Okay, didn't say that. All right, because, and There's really no nice way of saying this, but we don't care. Okay. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what does it mean? What is God's meaning? Okay. And you can draw an arrow from this component and up, back up to observation because the basis for good interpretation is always going to be careful observation. Okay, they go together. Your interpretation is going to flow from your observation. All right, here's the next. Third component is application. All right, this answers the question, how does the meaning of this passage apply to me? How do I apply what I just read? What am I to do or believe now that I have read this passage? All right, now Jen Wilkin has some wonderful teaching on this particular topic. And she contends that most of the time, we women have a very debit card mentality when it comes to Bible study. We study or read a passage and we instantly want to have some type of emotional response or some type of use for it, okay? That's a debit card mentality. And she says that we need to have a savings account mentality to read our Bible as if we are storing up treasure and making deposits. Okay, that's an excellent point, because there are going to be times where you read your Bible and you may not draw on it or find comfort from it for many weeks later, maybe years later, okay? All right, now next to the word interpretation, write the number one, because there is usually, not always, but there is usually only one correct interpretation. All right, now next to the word application, you can write the word many. Okay, because there can be many ways to apply a passage. For instance, I might read a passage, say from James, about the tongue and godly speech, and I might apply that to the way that I talk to my husband. I might apply that to the way I text a friend. I might apply that to the way I choose a movie. Okay, so one interpretation many applications. All right, those are the three components in a nutshell, and you're going to see that your homework is going to incorporate that as you go through it. All right, next, anytime you are reading or studying the Bible, you want to understand that the Bible is a book about God. Here's our next point. Number one, remember, God is the hero of the Bible. Okay, God is the main character. He is the hero. It is a book about him, it is a book about his word. Okay, and we talked a little bit about this when we um, studied Esther. We said that's a great thing to do when you're going through those Old Testament narratives to remember that he is the hero. Every time you study or you read the Bible, you want to be asking yourself, what is this teaching me about God? What am I learning about God from this passage? What am I to believe? about God. I've shared this before, but years ago I would teach and when I, when I would have a lesson on Esther or Ruth or Joshua, I would make the, I would make the lesson about them and I would make them the hero. Okay, that's wrong and I'm trying uh, not to do that anymore. Now, this has been a real game changer when I'm teaching my grandkids because now I want to emphasize with them, God is the hero of this story. He's a worthy hero. You know, and you want to be teaching them to watch for that um, as you're teaching them the Bible. All right, we read the Bible to know God. Here's our next point. Number two, the goal of Bible study is to know God and be conformed into the image of Christ. Okay, that is why we read the Bible. That's why we're going to be studying the book of James. To know God and then to adapt our lives to Him. All right, here's the next point, number three. Always begin your Bible study, Bible reading, and study time with prayer. Prayer, you can't study the Bible properly or understand it without the Spirit of God. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit that's gonna guide us into truth and illuminate the mind of the reader. Okay, so prayer is going to precede anything that we do. All right, here's the next one, number four. Keep context king. Okay, context rules. Now what do I mean by that? Well, I have this on your paper. The context is the setting in which something dwells. The context is the setting in which something dwells. I want you to think of a fish. If You take a fish out of water, if you take a fish out of its context, it cannot function. All right, it's the same thing with a Bible study. You see, a person can take a verse out of the Bible and put it off over here by itself and make it say whatever they want to. Um, I've shared this uh, story before. Uh, But when my kids were babies, so we're talking, you know, 25, uh, 30 years ago, I remember watching the Phil Donahue show. And on it, he had a panel of people from different denominations, and they were talking about their churches. And on uh, the panel was a man from the Church of Marijuana, And he explained how his people got together every Sunday and smoked pot. And um, like I said, this was 25 years ago when people found this shocking. And Donahue was completely baffled. And he says to the man, you know, why are you here? What makes you think you're a church? And that man proceeded to quote a Bible verse. He quoted a Bible verse from Genesis about seeds and plants. He used a Bible verse to make his case. All right, now here's the thing. He did not keep context king, okay? He took a little verse, he put it way over here, and made the Bible say something that was very uh, convenient and appealing to him. All right, we don't ever want to do that. We want to keep context king. Um, One writer put it this way, you need to check and see who the neighbors are Okay? That means you're going to read the verse before, to read the verse after. We're actually going to be talking more about that. But you want to see what is the setting in which it dwells. Okay? All right, here's our next point. The meaning of a Bible passage is determined by God and discovered by the reader. You do not get to determine the meaning. Mr. Marijuana Church Guy, uh, sorry you do not get to determine the meaning. The meaning has already been determined by God. The meaning has already been assigned by God. The, God, the Bible is God-breathed, okay? Now, the, God is the author, but he also has a human author, and it is our job to dig and discover what that author intended, okay? Now, let's talk a little bit about the best way to do that, okay? We're going to start with observation, and this is the the part that we're going to concentrate on the most this morning. All right, here's our next point. Read the Bible literally and photo, F-O-T-O. Here's what I mean by that. First, you are going to read the passage literally and look for the clear meaning, not hidden meaning, or codes, you're going to take every word in its ordinary, usual meaning. If a passage says he walked up the mountain, then it means he walked up the mountain, okay? You don't have to read that and think, what's really going on here? Is it, is he saying something deeper, code? Okay, no, it means he walked up the mountain, all right? Now, um, that's what I mean by, um, reading it literally. There's an old saying. I have it on your paper. It says, if the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. All right. All right. What do I mean by photo? Here's what that stands for. Focus on the obvious. Focus on the obvious. When you are in observing a text, you're going to focus on the obvious. And this is something that you do with everything that you read. Okay, you're going to focus on things like the people and the setting and the story and the plot and repeated words, okay, things that are obvious. Okay, that brings me to our next point, number seven. Read with purpose and investigate. Okay, when you are reading and investigating a passage or or observing a text, you want to investigate it like a good detective, all right? And uh, the best way to do that is to investigate the passage by asking the investigative questions. Here's number eight on your paper. Ask the investigative questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Those are sometimes known as the five W's and an H. We're actually going to try this. On James chapter 1, verse 1, I think I have that on your paper too. James 1, verse 1 says this read along with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, here's what I want to do. We're going to work through those investigative questions. Who is writing? Answer, James. Good. Who is he writing to? Twelve tribes in the dispersion. Okay, let's ask this. Where are those twelve tribes? Where are they? They're dispersed, right? They're scattered. Okay, good. All right, what's going on? Now, we might say uh, in this passage we're getting a greeting. So let's ask the question, what is the instruction he's giving? Tell me. Count it all joy. Yeah, count it all joy. All right, When? are you to count it all joy? Tell me. When you meet trials of various kinds. Good. All right. Now, why? Why are you to count it all joy? Did you catch that? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Excellent. All right. We have just worked through this passage through the five W's. Now, we didn't ask an H question, the how, some, and that's okay because you're not going to be able to answer every question every time. All right. Now, here's the next thing we want to do. Number nine, look for and mark keywords and phrases. I want to see if I, I brought it here. Okay. Um, when I want to really study a book, I will uh, download and print a copy of it off like this and you can get these on the internet if anybody needs help doing that um, see me after class um, and I will just go to town and I will start marking things up I, I color code things I've got notes written all over it okay and what I'm going to do is watch for key words now what are those number 10 on your paper a key word locks in meaning you could also say unlocks meaning it is a word used in a significant way or a word which cannot be removed from the text without leaving it devoid of meaning. They are often repeated. All right, now we're gonna try this one out too. I've got a verse, uh, I think this is printed on your papers. It's James chapter one, it's from verse um, 13. He says this, watch for that repeated word. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Okay, what does James obviously want to talk about? Temptation, absolutely. Okay, that's clearly what he's going for. All right, good. Here's our next point, number 11. Look for and mark expressions of time. Okay, time. All right, um, When you are reading, you want to pay attention to words that indicate time. All right, if I were to say to you, I have something to give you, Um, can you meet me back here at 1130? Okay, I've just indicated a time. But I could also say, can you meet me back here after class? Or can you meet me back here before lunch? There are different ways to indicate time. And um, that's something that you want to watch for. You want to watch for expressions of time because they are going to tell you when something is happening. All right, now I usually mark those on my paper with a clock, but uh, in the book of James, I really don't have any, all right? Um, here's the next thing we want to look, at, look for. Uh, number 12, look for and mark geographical locations. All right now with this one, you are paying attention to where things take place. All right, um, sometimes you can mark the names of the cities and the rivers and the mountains, things that are telling you where. All right, now um, those, I did not have a lot of those in the book of James. All right, now here's what you will have a lot of. Here's the next thing, verse thir- or number 13. Look for and mark contrasts and comparisons. Okay, the Bible, that's a tool that the Bible uses often. It'll contrast things. It'll compare things for you. If I were to say to you, um, I need you to go get my sister. Uh, she's got a haircut like mine, and she's, got, she's wearing a shirt like mine. Okay, is that information going to be helpful? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've compared it to something that you can relate to and that you can understand. Um, I've compared it using the word like. Right, that is something that James is going to be using a lot, and that's something you want to watch for as you're reading. All right, uh, contrasts do a similar thing, except now you're comparing its opposite, okay? And um, James is going to do a lot of that too. You're going to recognize those by the word but, by the word however, words that indicate there is a change of direction, okay? All right, those are some of, just some Bible study skills uh, in general. Just to get them some things started, um, I want us to have time to talk about James. Now, I have more information on your papers that you, if you feel like looking at later, you can. All right, now usually, when I st- start with a, um, an epistle, I want to be sure to put it in its context, and I do that usually by putting up what I think of as a fence. Now, some people will say they're framing it in, but basically what we want to do is we want to set up some borders we wanna put the book in its context. And then when we're trying to understand the book, it's, it's, we wanna understand it from within our fence or our frame, okay, or our context, all right? And um, especially the hard, there's gonna be some um, hard to understand verses in this passage that are going to just make a lot, they're going to be a lot easier to interpret once we have our fence posts, once we have our fences up. Okay, there are typically four things that I like to use when I am setting up my fence. And here is the first side, A, has to do with the author of the book, who wrote the book. All right, now take another look at verse one on your papers. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersions, dispersion, greetings. Now, as I said, usually I like to read through the book and I'll take a Bloom pencil and I will mark every time that I see a reference made to that author, every time the author refers to himself. Now, in the book of James, I noticed something very interesting and that is that I marked his name in the first verse and then I didn't really have any other markings from here on in. James doesn't say much about himself. He doesn't uh, tell us much about himself in this, past, in this book, which is a, a little unusual. Now, the Bible, on the other hand, does give us some information about James. In the Bible, there are numerous, in the um, New Testament, there are numerous men with the name of James, but it is almost universally taught that the book of James was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, and we first read his name in the Gospels. He shows up in the Gospels. He's usually, usually listed with his siblings. And um, in the New Testament, in the Bible, often when uh, children are named, they're usually named in birth order. His name comes first. So it's typically understood that um, he was the oldest child after um, Jesus. Um, in the Bible, or the Gospels tell us that James was not a fan of Jesus and Jesus' early earthly ministry. In fact, he almost comes across very antagonistic, teaches, treats Jesus as if Jesus is schizophrenic, okay? But all of that will change after the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus will appear to James, and from then on, we will see James become a leader in the church in um, Jerusalem. Tradition tells us that he was given the nickname James the Just, and old camel knees because of um, the calluses on his knees from the hours that he spent in prayer. He will be martyred in AD 62, and there are several different um, accounts of that. One historian reports that he was stoned to death. Another historian reports that the Jewish authorities um, took him to the top of the pinnacle, most likely in a very mocking way, and pushed him to his death off the pinnacle, the problem. Well, the thing is, the fall did not kill him, And so he supposedly attempts to get up and he is praying for his assailants. Well, that makes them the even matter, so they begin to stone him. The stoning does not let's see, I lose my ear. The stoning. Can you hear me, OK? The stoning does not kill him. And so a Jewish soldier comes and beats him on the club with a head pleats him on his head with a club. Okay, it is said that the, um, the Christians, they gather his body to uh, take him away for burial, and that is when they discover the condition of his knees. All right, now I want you to notice in verse 1 how he describes himself. He describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, he does not mention that his parents are the... Mary, and Joseph, or that he shared a room, or had breakfast every morning with Jesus. He does not um, say anything like that. His introduction is incredibly brief and humble, all right? Now, he gives us his name without any further credentials. Now, I want you to think about that Because in order for him to be able to do that, for him to give his name with no further credentials and it to be understood as uh, authoritative, um, would suggest that he was already well-established and a known leader in the church. Now, I'm going to give you an example. If you were to go home today and have a letter in the mail, and in it were instructions on how you can help make America great again, and then at the end it is signed, Donald. You are not going to read that letter and go, Donald who? Okay. You're not gonna think like that. Right, it's the same with the book of James, okay? He is um, well-known authority at the early time of the church and so that way he can get by with a brief introduction and also um, display incredible humility. Now, let's move on. Let's talk about side B, because this is a New Testament letter. We want to think about who the original recipients are. Who is he writing to? And we've just said he is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the 12 tribes is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, in verse 2, he refers to them as my brethren, so he's writing to Jews, but um, he means more than they are just Jewish in nationality. Turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 1. He says, My brothers, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, so he's calling them brothers, but he's not just referring to their common Jewish ancestry um, that they share. They are Jews that now hold the faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's writing to Jewish believers. You might want to write that on the side of your fence. You could also write that they were scattered. Okay, that means that this letter is not being written to one single church. That makes it a general letter. Sometimes it's called a general epistle. You could write that next to that side of the fence as well. Now, if it is a general letter, that means it's for all believers, then why does he address it to the 12 tribes? Why not just say to all believers? What's the significance of it being addressed to Jewish believers? All right, we want to talk about that. I have a couple things I want you to see. All right. For, for starters, we want to understand that when James wrote this letter, or it was probably uh, more like a sermon, um, his first intended recipients were Jews. Jews that had become believers. And so the feel of this book is very Jewish. Okay. The examples, the references, all very Jewish. It's said to be the most Jewish book in the New Testament. It's going to be as if, Uh, James is almost going to sound like a Jewish rabbi. All right, now, consequently, here's what this means to us. He's not going to take the time to explain certain things because he didn't have to with them. All right, now, um, let me give you an example of what I mean. I shared um, last year that my husband is relatively a new believer, okay? But he grew up in the church. He was at church every week. So when he did become a believer in Jesus, he kind of already knew the terminology. He knew the Old Testament stories. He knew his way around the Bible. Okay, so if somebody were to sit down and disciple him, they weren't going to have to take the time to display or to discuss all the, all the simple basic things. They could make references to an Old Testament story. All right, now let's consider um, the opposite. Let's consider if a friend becomes a disciple in Christ later in life and she was not raised in a Christian home. Okay, the way I discipled her is going to be a little different. I'm not going to assume that she knows some of those old Bible characters. I might take the time to elaborate and explain on things. Okay, well, James' original readers were had a religious background. Okay, so that, that means that his style and his content is going to reflect that. Um, uh, he doesn't have to explain things because he didn't have to with them. Now, sometimes, the reason I bring that up is because sometimes the book of James is criticized for what it does not contain and what he does not discuss. Um, Well, that's probably because those critics did not make offense like we are doing. Okay, how else is it going to impact our reading? Well, he's not going to take the time to elaborate on theology and doctrine because he's going to assume that they already know it. Okay? Now, so instead, he's going to concentrate on application. Okay, he's going to concentrate on instruction. Now, when we studied the book of Ephesians, if you were here, we spent three weeks, Paul spends three, not three weeks, Paul spends three chapters discussing doctrine and then in chapter 4, he gets very practical with the instruction. All right, that's not the case in James, and I want you to see it. He hits the floor running. Look back at verse 1. He's going to start with a quick and a humble introduction. He identifies who he's writing to, and then, boom, instruction. Verse 2, consider it all joy. All right, it's, it's said that of the 108 verses in the book, there are over 55 imperatives. that is going to break down to about two, one out of every two verses is going to be some type of command or instruction. One um, pastor called it the bossiest book in the New Testament. All right, now I want to move on to um, talk a little bit about the C side of our fence, and that's the historical context, the historical background, because it's actually going to tell us some more about what these uh, first recipients were dealing with. What's the historical context? context? When was the book written? And is there anything going on historically that, would, um, that we need to know about? All right, first of all, you can write down next to this mid-40s AD, because that's the date that most scholars estimate <clears throat> that the book was written. So that would make it the first New Testament book to be written, even before the Gospels. All right, now I want you to think about that. Christianity is new. The events are fresh. There are people hearing the book of James that may have heard Jesus preach firsthand. They may have been in the crowds on the day that he died. They may have been in the crowds when he fed the 5,000. Okay? Now, also, James was written at a time when Christianity was still very Jewish, okay? Christianity is going to start out Jewish before the gospel then is taken to the Gentiles. Now, turn with me to the book of Acts, because we need to see something. The book of Acts, chapter 7. If you're familiar with um, the book of Acts and church history, then you know that those years immediately after the resurrection, when the gospel was first spreading, were dangerous, okay? Now we're going to start with Acts chapter 7 verse 59 says this And as they were stoning Stephen he crawled out he called out Lord Jesus receive my spirit and falling to his knees he cried out with a loud voice Lord do not hold this sin against them And when he said this he fell asleep And Saul approved of his execution And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Okay, there's our word. Scattered, dispersed. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay, the gospel first percolates in Jerusalem among the Jews, and then the persecution hits, and you begin to see the believers scatter. And the gospel goes with it, with them. All right, one more, turn to Acts chapter nine. This is after the death of Stephen. Acts chapter nine, verse one says this, "'But Saul, still breathing threats and murder "'against the disciples of the Lord, "'went to the high priest and asked him "'for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, "'so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, "'men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem.'" Okay, do you get the picture of the historical context? All right, this is what life was like. If you were a Jew that had turned from their sin and began to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ from, from, sel- uh, from sin for salvation, you were in danger, even if you were a woman of being rounded up by the Jewish authorities and bound and dragged to Jerusalem. And Saul's intent was threats and murder. I want you to think today, I want you to think about Muslim women today living in a Muslim country, and that woman wants to uh, leave Islam and turn to Christianity, her life is immediately in danger. She's going to suffer threats and persecution, right? That's what it was like for those first early believers. And so what you see is you see them pick up their belongings, and they leave, and they begin to scatter. That's who James is writing to. Okay? That's historically what's going on. All right, let's move on and talk about the last side of our fence, and that is has to do with the genre of the book and its theme and its purpose. Why did the human author write it? And what's the tone? What's the tone of the book? Now, we've already said it was a general epistle. That meant it was going to be circulated among all the churches. The things that it talks about are very universal. right? They are um, problems that every church deals with. Now, you could also write down wisdom literature because the book of James is often compared to the Proverbs, book of Proverbs, or the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, you'll hear it called the Proverbs of the New Testament. At, James, at times, James is very poetic. He uses a lot of very pithy and quotable phrases. Now, what is the tone of the book? All right, now we've already said that the recipients, they've been dispersed. We know that they have been suffering uh, great persecution. So you might almost expect the tone to be very soft and, you know, pat you on the shoulder, everything's going to be okay kind of tone. Um, that is not the tone. There is an old movie called um, Moonlight, Moon, Moonlight, I think. Um, it starred Cher and Nicolas Cage. And in it, there is a very famous scene where he tells her that he loves her. And then she walks over to him and she smacks him. And then she smacks him again and says, snap out of it. That is more like the tone of the book of James. Okay, um, in the book of James, there are going to be times where you feel like you have just been smacked and told to snap out of it, okay? Or maybe you have had someone take you by the shoulders and look you in the eye and just with great intensity say, this has got to stop or this has got to change, okay? That, that kind of thing. There are going to be times where James comes across like a fiery Old Testament preacher, Okay, so if you, while you're reading this, you feel like you're getting smacked around a little bit, um, this is what I would say, welcome to the book of James, (laughs) okay? Now, you are probably not going to feel comfortable reading it, but it's a book that comforts, okay? Now, why does he write this way? What's his purpose in writing? Okay, now sometimes an author will come right out and tell you. All right, so uh, James does not do that. So in this book, we have to look at some of the things that he's addressing. What is is he talking about? And this is where it is very handy if you have been watching for repeated words. Now, I have a list of them. I made a list of some of the big uh, repeated words that are found in the book. I have them on your handout. Now, they vary a little depending on what translation you use. All right, but this is going to give us an idea of what we'll be talking about this semester, and it also helps us determine what is the theme and the purpose of the book. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Uh, As you look on that list, um, there are words that are not on the list, and it gets James in a lot of trouble. Okay, you are not going to see. He does not talk about the cross. He doesn't talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, he really doesn't use the name of Jesus at all, much much at all in this book. Okay, so I, I usually mark the name of Jesus with a red cross, and I don't have many of those on here. All right, but here's what you are going to hear or read. You're going to read the teaching of Jesus. When I was in the fifth grade, <clears throat> I was invited to go to the beach with some of my extended family, and I was so excited about going. And on the day that I left, I was hugging my mother goodbye, and as I stepped back, I could see that she was crying. And I was, I, I was like, I thought that was weird. I did not understand at the time why, why she was crying um, and until that night when I was going to bed. Then that's when the homesickness hit me, and, um, and it, and it, it hit every night when I went to bed, but I did not ask. I didn't say anything to anyone, and I didn't ask to go home. But here's what I did. I spent the week quoting my mother and just regurgitating all of her words. If we went to do something, I quoted something that she would have said about it. If my older cousins were acting mischievous, I quoted the thing that my mother would say, I spent a week being a little mini Nancy, okay? In fact, on the last day I got hurt, and my aunt was um, putting a band-aid on my knee, and she said to me, oh, you know, I hope that if my daughter ever leaves me for a week, she talks about the things that your mother has taught you the way you have talked about your mother's teachings, okay? That's the book of James. Younger brother is consumed and loves the words and teachings of his brother. And so while you're not going to necessarily, oh, and by the way, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, okay, and so while you're not necessarily going to see the name of Jesus spelled out, it's going to sound like him, okay? Here's our next point. While references to Jesus are few, James is filled with the voice of and the teaching of Jesus. Okay, I want to close with some mistakes that people can make when studying this book. Because James does not mention the cross, and he does not, and, it's, and, it, and it is filled with so much of the teaching and the commands and the instruction, it's very easy for people to read this book and think that Christianity is all about keeping a list of do's and don'ts, okay? And trying to be good people and not about grace, okay? And that we do not want to make that mistake because Christianity is always about grace. It is always about faith, okay? And James, what he's going to do, he's going to show us that if our faith is real, then there's going to be evidence about it in our lives, okay? That a profession of faith is not enough. Genuine faith cannot exist without the works, Here is our last point, and it's going to be a good summary. Number 15. The message of the book of James is that a profession of faith isn't enough. Faith must demonstrate itself as real. As real. Would you pray with me? Father, my... uh, my prayer is simple this morning. I just pray that you will help these women uh, to find time to get into the book of James this, this week and meet with you there. Father, I pray that uh, as we work through this uh, book, that we will just have, be affirmed that our faith is genuine and, be, uh, and display that in our, in our community, in our world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Okay. If anyone does not know which group they go to, uh, I don't have my list, but Tammy here will help you get there. Okay. Enjoy your groups.